You've found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Today, we're going to continue our uh, series of podcasts, which we started last summer and then continued earlier this summer, on the Oak Island timeline, the history of the treasure hunt. But before we do that, let me just take care of a couple pieces of business here. Uh, First, I need your help with an upcoming preview podcast I want to put together for Season 8 of The Curse of Oak Island, just maybe next week or even the week after. I need you to send me your predictions for what you, the viewers of the show, and the listeners to this podcast think might happen in the upcoming season and uh, what you would like to see happen, you know, like your wish list, so to speak. You can email that to me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com, or you can DM me via Facebook or Twitter. Again, just search at diggingoakisland in the search bars of either one, Facebook or Twitter, and you'll come up with us. Uh, Please get them into me soon so we can put this show together. Also, we have an email to answer from our friend Steve in Ohio who writes, Nice to have you back, and I hope that kindergarten's going well. He's referring to the fact that I'm now teaching my five-year-old. Not something I was planning on doing and not something I'm very good at. Uh, Anyway, uh, with respect to episode 49's discussion, I think you hit the nail on the head when you asked something along the lines of, can it be both a sinkhole and the money pit? I can picture group landing on the island, the French, British, Spanish, First Nations, Tribe, Templars, whoever. They disembark their ship and begin surveying the island They've heard tales of it, and they have something to hide. It need not be pirate treasure, the Shakespeare manuscripts, the treasure of Solomon's temple. One of them is perhaps that era's version of an engineer, and he realizes that the island has several natural sinkholes and suggests that they actually excavate a specific sinkhole. It's going to be easier digging than digging into the harder land around it. It's also surrounded by oak trees, which will make it easier to hoist materials in and out of the growing pit. Few, or perhaps no, flood tunnels need to be created because the island's subsurface is riddled with the natural tunnels. It's just a bonus created when later searchers start Swiss-cheesing the island. Just a thought, in such a scenario, both the geography and the archaeology better align. The money pit may have started as a natural sinkhole that was later excavated just because it was easier to dig. All the best, Steve. Uh, Thank you for the email, Steve, as always. I have to agree, after my interview with Dr. Stephen Aiken regarding the scientific evidence that the money pit is actually a naturally forming sinkhole, go back a couple episodes, you'll, you'll be able to hear what we're talking about here. My mind went in this very same direction. Is it possible that someone did decide to bury a treasure or perform some sort of clandestine underground project, uh, only later to come to the realization that... They happen to choose an area of the world prone to sinkholing and natural underground tunnels. Is it possible these folks buried their treasure and at the same time had no idea they picked a place to bury it that also, you know, included sinkholes? Is it possible that the ground around what we now call the money pit looked very different centuries ago? And since then, these sinkholes may have progressed or even formed. Or as you suggest, Steve, could whoever did all of this actually have used these natural formations that they found underground here to their advantage somehow. doesn't seem like a stretch. Let me mention something else for you, Steve. A name I have mentioned a few times in the course of this theoretical geological discussion 
is geologist and author Gordon Faber. He's the co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved, the final chapter. We've talked about this quite a bit. After posting the last podcast, uh, not, not, not the one with the interview, but the one after that, Gordon wrote me this. Hi, Dave. Listen to this podcast. You had better read our book ASAP as it answers most of the questions that you've been proposed that you have proposed today. We married the geological science with the archaeology and history and understand how conditions got to be as they are on the island. In fact, our new research has provided us with even more answers and knowledge that still leads to the British military and sinkholes as the two key elements not really mentioned or properly assessed on the show. I look forward to your review of the book and possibly an interview for an additional clarification. All the best. Well, Steve, uh, Mr. Faber certainly convinced me, and my copy arrived in the mail today. Uh, and I have a season to a season of the show to read it and dig it apart before we get Mr. Faber on here. Perhaps it's time, Steve, that you got one too. <laughs> and then we can both come back to this discussion later on after we've read it and maybe see what we think of these of this uh, of this idea. Anyway, thank you for the email, Steve. It's always great to hear from you. Uh, let's take a short break here, and when we come back, we're going to have our continuation of the history of the Oak Island treasure hunt. When last we spoke on the subject of the history of the Oak Island treasure hunt, it was 1864. The Oak Island Association's time on Oak Island had come to an end the same way all other treasure companies did before it, and all that will come and go after them. With perhaps some small and maybe intriguing possible successes, but ultimately in failure and, of course, financial ruin. The Oak Island Association had discovered the flood tunnels and even pulled some pieces of what they thought was pre-searcher wood out of the money pit, but no pirate gold or anything else that might help them to at least satisfy their investors. But what's more, the Oak Island Association also essentially destroyed the money pit. Whatever small victories this group of searchers could claim for themselves, they would all pale in comparison to the irreparable harm caused by the 1861 collapse of the money pit, which would forever change and complicate the treasure hunt on Oak Island. Before the Oak Island Association, there was a target to shoot for, a depth underground where something strange was likely located and on which all digging efforts could be concentrated. But after the Oak Island Association, whatever was there was now at an undetermined depth and buried under an estimated 10,000 pounds of lumber and Lord knows what else. Author Randall Sullivan, who wrote the Curse of Oak Island book, uh, said the collapse would, quote, prove to be the greatest disaster in the history of Oak Island, not involving the loss of life, leaving the money pit in an all but impenetrable jumble of mud, lumber and equipment. The treasure, if there was one, was believed to have fallen either into a tunnel or deeper into the pit. So it's not hard to imagine how difficult and in the end impossible it must have been for uh, the former engineer of the Oak Island Association, a man named Henry George Hill, to find financial backers to help him finance yet another attempt at the treasure. Hill, along with a man named Augustus Oliver Creighton, great name, who owned a soon-to-be-famous bookbindery in Halifax, started to put together an organization they called the Oak Island Contract Company. But in order to dig hundreds of feet underground or clear the rocks and sand from off a big beach, you need men, you need equipment. In order to get those things, you need money. 
since Hill and Creighton weren't rich enough personally to foot the bill themselves, they needed to find investors. The trouble is, they just couldn't find any. Not hard to figure out why when you consider the recent history on the island. I can only imagine the conversations Mr. Hill must have had with these potential investors. These are successful businessmen, and he's asking them to invest good money, hard-earned money, into a treasure hunt he just spectacularly failed at, or at least part of it, you know, only a couple of years before. Couldn't have been easy for poor old Henry, to say the least. Sure, the past failures weren't all his, but you know what I'm getting at here. One interesting side note to the very short and rather uneventful story of the Oak Island Contract Company has to do with Mr. Hill's aforementioned partner, the wonderfully named Augustus Oliver Creighton. Some of you may know this or have deduced this already, but for those who don't, Mr. Creighton just might be the man most responsible for the loss of the famous 90-foot stone found by the Onslow Company in 1804. Okay, let's back up just a bit and give you the details if you don't know. Uh, the when, the who of all this uh, is a little bit sorted. But according to some reports, and a lot of them, uh, the 90-foot stone was placed in the chimney of the late money pit discoverer John Smith. And then later, taken by a man named Jotham McCollum, a former Oak Island treasure hunter who was involved in the Truro Company and the Oak Island Association. He was also the author of the famous Liverpool Transcript article of 1862. Uh, McCauley, they, the, the stone was taken to McCulley's house in Truro, Nova Scotia. Now, like I said, according to some reports, Creighton then took the stone from, from McCulley's house to be put on display in his shop, the Creighton and Marshall Book Bindery in Halifax, to be used as a sort of clever marketing tool to help lure potential investors. Now, some researchers say that the story of how the stone would end up at the book bindery all happened maybe a few years later than this, since Creighton would be involved with Oak Island for you know some time. But no matter when exactly this all happened isn't really the point. It certainly seems Oak Island's very own AOC is indeed the man responsible for the chain of events, which would eventually lead to the stone being lost to history. And like I said, this little publicity ploy didn't work, and the Oak Island contract company never got off the ground and never were able to begin digging on Oak Island. But Creighton and Hill weren't about to give up yet, uh, and in a few short years, they'd be back to try again at another shot at the Oak Island treasure. Now, two years after the Oak Island contract company failed to get off the ground, Henry George Hill and Augustus Oliver Creighton were back at it, putting together a new company to try and finally go treasure hunting on Oak Island. They recu recruited a few new partners to help them in their venture, including Oak Island Association veteran James McNutt, and I believe also the aforementioned Jotham McCulley in some way, shape, or form was involved, although McCulley doesn't always appear in the company records. I've, I've seen him in a few spots, and it makes sense. I know I always seem to mention James McNutt, and I certainly also mention a lot Jotham McCulley. And it's because of the incredibly important role both of these men play in our current understanding of the history of the money pit and the exploration of the island. For researchers like myself, these guys are really rock stars. Between the two of them, they personally witnessed a huge portion of this early and most important period of uh, Oak Island projects, and thankfully, they wrote a lot of it down. For this period, the second half of the 19th century, Macaulay and McNutt are truly the gateway to nearly all our current research on this pivotal era in Oak Island history. Now, it bears mentioning that Macaulay and McNutt were both actively trying to get investors. They were basically acting as salesmen for 
shares in their companies. So we certainly need to look at their writings and their information with something of a skeptical eye. But be that as it may, these guys are really huge figures in Oak Island lore. The company Hill and Creighton formed would come to be commonly known throughout Oak Island history as the Halifax Company, but was officially named the Oak Island El Dorado Company. I assume the El Dorado was a reference to the legend of the mythical Spanish or South American city of gold, or maybe he might have even been, El Dorado might have even been a rich um, tribal leader who was rich in gold. Uh, this was a story told by Spanish explorers in the 16th century. Uh, it depends on who and when the El Dorado legend is being told, as whether it's a person or a place. That's pretty cool, though. Look it up. Uh, but this time, Hill, Creighton, and their partners were successful in finding enough initial investment to begin working on Oak Island. Maybe the 90-foot stone did the trick this time, or maybe it was that clever El Dorado reference. I don't know. Either way, they got their marketing right this time and, and uh, you know, were able to raise sufficient funds to begin their first big project. And that was the project of blocking off the ocean at Smith's Cove. By this time, it's the middle of the 19th century, all of the Oak Island treasure hunters were well and truly convinced the money pit was indeed booby-trapped by a flooding system that included tunnels leading out from Smith's Cove. From their initial proposal to possible investors, the men of the Halifax Company were resolved to, quote, build a substantial wood and clay dam seaward in Smith's Cove to extend out beyond the rockwork so as to encompass the hole within the dam, to pump out all of the water within the area, and to break up the inlet from the sea. Now, it must be said this idea had been tried in the past, right? They weren't the first to come up with this, specifically by the Truro Company in 1850 who did this, only to fail at it. But like so many Oak Island treasure hunters over the years, these guys were convinced. They had learned the lessons from the past, and uh, they were going to get it right this time. They were going to learn from those past failures. So in the summer of 1866, the Halifax Company began construction on a giant cofferdam that would eventually stand 12 feet high, stretch a full 375 feet along the beach, and stand 120 feet out from the high tide mark. Now remember, these guys had no power tools, no big cranes, nothing but sweat and hard work, and what I have to assume was an awful lot of soggy socks. So one can only imagine the mood around the island and the company ranks when the Atlantic Ocean storms and tides took the whole darn thing down before they could ever really see what effect its presence might have had on the flooding in the money pit. It was nothing short of total catastrophe for the Halifax company. Their idea had failed, but what was worse was that most of their initial investment money was now spent and gone, and with nothing to show for it. For all the criticisms we can levy on the Laginas and their partners, uh, we have to admit this. They certainly got this cofferdam project right. They're not the only ones. Dan Blankenship did a good job with it, too. But many, many companies over the years tried this and failed, um, you know, and lost to the Atlantic Ocean. So with the Smith's Cove work coming up empty, the Halifax Company decided to turn their attention once again towards the money pit. The idea they came up with was to basically assess the damage caused by the collapse of the money pit and maybe perhaps find what actually happened to the treasure as a result of this accident. Remember the collapse actually um, occurred while the Oak Island Association was working the money pit, and that was really the last company on the island before the Halifax company arrived. 
And with many of the top brass in the Halifax company being also former members of the Oak Island Association, you can see how they might have also had little, what do you call, unfinished business over at the money pit. Basically, what they started doing was the same kind of exploratory drilling you see the Laginas doing a lot of now on the show. If I'm not mistaken, they were even the first to use sort of a casing system with their drills so they can get a good core sample and know exactly at what depth that core sample came from. Meaning before they employed this technique, searchers would just simply put a drill down and when it came up, you had a general idea of what depth the samples of what you were bringing up came from, but you weren't always 100% sure that what you were looking at wasn't perhaps maybe something the drill had just pushed down a little further or even something that might have fallen from a higher depth as the drill's coming up. It was hard to really know. Like I said, it really is the general idea behind the exploratory drilling they do now and made the depth data that they're looking at far more reliable. And again, they were the pioneers in this. So let's just review for a second. Remember, before the collapse the diggers had a definitive certain target they were shooting for in the money pit. Here's what Macaulay said in his Liverpool transcript article about the work of the Truro Company in and around 1850. Quote, The second hole we bored struck the platform which the old diggers told us about, precisely at the depth they told us they had struck it with the crowbar, 98 feet. It proved to be spruce, six inches thick. After the auger went through it, dropped one foot and struck wood again which was oak, four inches thick. Then 20 inches of metal in small pieces, which we knew from the sound and from the fact that the auger would go through simply by turning it, then eight inches of oak, then 20 inches of metal, then four inches of oak, six inches of spruce, and then seven feet worked clay, then hard clay, which had never been disturbed. If you listen to that all again, It certainly sounds like what they found evidence of were two treasure chests, I guess, filled with coins or some sort of loose pieces, probably coins, maybe jewels, who knows, uh, and these two were placed one on top of each other. Now, again, listen to that again, that description, and doesn't that, don't you get that too? So did everybody else who came after it. Now, due to the variety of challenges, mostly the constant flooding of the, uh, of the ocean water, uh, the diggers were never able to get a good look at whatever this was they were hitting with the drill. And this target, at just about 100 feet down, was what the Oak Island Association were trying to get at when the money pit collapse occurred. So, what exactly happened to whatever this was down there after 10,000 pounds of wood and digging equipment came crashing down on top of it, well, that's the problem. Where did it all go? How much deeper down was it pushed? Did it go straight down? Was it moved to one side or the other? Was it smashed to pieces and scattered throughout in underground cavern formations? These were the the questions that the Halifax company were hoping to answer with this idea. And now we turn back to Mr. McNutt, who thankfully wrote some pretty detailed accounts of the drilling done by the Halifax Company. According to McNutt, one of these drills apparently struck spruce wood at around 110 feet, then continued down another 18 feet or so before hitting what McNutt described like this, quote, water commenced to flow on the tube carrying up clay, gravel, and stones as large as would come up through the tube also chips of wood and coconut fiber 
and a considerable amount of what appeared to be charcoal, end quote. As they continued further down, they hit even more pieces of oak, chips of spruce and poplar, and also more pockets of water until around 150 feet when they began drilling through what he called, quote, dry and firm clay apparently never been disturbed. So the conclusion from all of this was really pretty clear and also very, very discouraging. As they feared, the collapse turned the bottom of the money pit into a giant scattered mess. And if whatever was down there was still intact, they had no idea where it might have ended up. But more likely, it wasn't intact at all. So think for a second about what this means for the Laginas now and in our current search and in the television show. If there ever really was a treasure chest or a vault of some kind, the Halifax Company pretty much proved that it was destroyed in 1861. And if the Laginas find anything approximating gold or coins, they are most likely going to find it scattered throughout a huge underground debris field that covers God knows how much of that of under that island. So don't expect, but the point is this. From what we've learned here and from what the Halifax Company learned, don't expect a dirty Jack Begley to ever come out of an underground cave holding a treasure chest in his hand anytime soon, or at all for that matter. After this drilling project ended, it seems the Halifax Company then tried to dig more than one new shaft and also apparently started a few tunneling projects. But unfortunately, uh, if McNutt wrote any of that down, those records have been lost. Now, I would imagine many avid viewers of this, especially of the Curse of Oak Island show, viewers and other you know, fans of Oak Island, will be asking about something commonly referred to as the Halifax Tunnel. We've heard a, so much about this many times over the course of the show. One, on more than one occasion during drilling or seismic scanning, this mention of some feature underground which would which is called the Halifax Tunnel, would be said by, you know, either a team member or the narrator. So what is it? And why haven't I mentioned it already here among all this talk about the Halifax Company? The term Halifax Tunnel, which sounds very definitive and it's really referred to on the show very sort of definitively, really isn't at all. Here's how Darcy O'Connor explains in his book, Secret Treasure of Oak Island. Quote, they may have dug a shaft 175 feet southeast of the money pit, and run a series of tunnels towards the pit. There is no original record of this work, although in the early 1940s, tunnels were found that appeared to dare, uh, appear to originate from the 1860s. End quote. So to clarify, when we talk about the Halifax Tunnel, or when anybody does, we're not really talking about one single tunnel, and we're certainly not talking about anything that's well documented, whose location we know for sure. Now, far be it from me to dispute the words of Mr. O'Connor, uh, but I was always under the impression that the original Halifax Tunnel found was found by Gilbert Hedden, and that would put it in the late 1930s, not the 1940s, kind of semantics there. And if my memory also serves, I believe another sort of quote-unquote Halifax Tunnel in a different place was found a couple of decades later by Robert Dunfield, so I think a few hundred feet to the east of the Money Pit over by an area known as the Caven Pit which we'll discuss a little bit more right after this break. With little success to show for their time and money spent on Oak Island, men of the Halifax Company ended their dig in 1861, leaving behind 
what one can only assume was an absolute mess of an island littered with holes and tunnels and tools and broken wood, God knows what else. Uh, The year 1867 also marked the end of what I would call the first era of treasure hunting on Oak Island. This was an era marked by, uh, how do I phrase this, successive attempts to reach a defined target. The next eras of digging to come, and to use that phrase, you know, would essentially be marked by successive attempts to relocate that very same target or to find a new target. Those attempts continue to this day. That's basically what the Laginas are doing now. So to sum up, the timeline for this first era goes a little something like this. 1795, Daniel McGinnis and his friends found the money pit. About a decade later, the Onslow Company dug down towards what they thought was the treasure vault. Later, the Truro Company found evidence that such a vault might actually exist. Then the Oak Island Association likely destroyed any such vault. And the Halifax Company were the ones to prove that destruction indeed occurred and how bad it just might have been. To put it even simpler, the first era was when diggers found a target and then lost said target. In what was a 70-year battle of wits between treasure hunters and Oak Island, the island was the clear victor here. Perhaps that explains why the island would be a quiet place for the next quarter century. But there actually were a couple of significant events uh, in Oak Island history, which did occur during these 25 years or so without any serious treasure hunting. After the Halifax Company left the island, landowner Anthony Graves and his family pretty much used the land on the east side of the island for farming, pretty much bringing it back to what it was pre-1795. Among his family members living on the island with him during this period was his daughter Sophia and her husband Henry Sellers. One day in 1875, Sophia was working on the farm, plowing with a team of oxen as she steered her plow across the land that fits in between the Money Pit and Smith's Cove. The ground suddenly opened up under them and swallowed, swallowed up poor Sophia and her oxen as they fell down into a 10-foot deep chasm. This new pit now would come to be called the Caven Pit. Mrs. Sellers and her oxen were apparently all recovered safely from the pit, although doubtless a bit shaken. Uh, later, treasure hunters would establish that this Caven Pit sits about 350 feet east of the Money Pit on a direct line between the box drains at Smith's Cove and the supposed treasure vault. The hopeful theorist likes to think the cave-in pit was formed as a result of the flood tunnel system collapsing. But remember what I mentioned before about the largely undocumented tunnels by the Halifax Company towards the end of their time on the island. In the 1960s, treasure hunter Robert Dunfield found a searcher tunnel dug in this area, and uh, he concluded that it must have been from the Halifax Company. So could that tunnel and the work done there, this undocumented work done there, have been the true cause of the cave and pit? Seems a reasonable theory to me, but so far no one has established anything concrete on that subject. In fact, I think it took several years before the Laginas ever really even mentioned the cave and pit on the show. If I'm not mistaken, it wasn't mentioned on the Curse of Oak Island until sometime in around season four or so. And certainly not worked on by the current team until even more recently. Could the cave pit offer some sort of insight into the construction of the money pit or the flood tunnels? That's a question no one has been able to answer for almost 150 years. Another significant event that occurred during this time frame is the death in 1888 of Anthony Graves, a farmer who probably came from nearby Lunenburg or perhaps some other neighboring town. Um, After original money pit discoverer and landowner John Smith passed away in 1857, John Smith's sons 
sold the property they inherited on the island, which included the money pit, along with some land on Frog Island, which is just off to the east, just off the eastern shore of Oak Island. They sold this to a guy named Henry Stevens. Stevens then weirdly turned around only a matter of a few weeks later and sold all of that land to Anthony Graves. I say weirdly because he sold it for exactly the same amount he paid for it. No idea why Stevens would do that or what the story is really all about, but there you go. Graves became the largest landowner on Oak Island at the time and the proprietor of the money pit. Anyone who wanted to dig on the island needed to come to a lease agreement with Graves, so he kind of in some way called the shots here a little bit. Anthony Graves also became something of a legend in Mahone Bay during his time, as I'm sure anyone with the last name of Graves living on a mysterious island probably would. Many stories like Graves paying for stuff with old pirate coins became very popular throughout the local area, but that same story was told about many folks related to Oak Island over the centuries. In the end, and I'm repeating myself here from a few previous podcasts where we mentioned Graves, it really does seem as though Mr. Graves was honestly just a farmer, not much of a treasure hunter. Uh, Despite the stories, it doesn't seem like Graves played much of a role in the various treasure hunts taking place in the island, other than just granting leases. And really, if it wasn't for the strange way he acquired the land, I'd be more than happy to think Graves was nothing more than a farmer who happened to own a popular piece of land, which really was just a small section of his much larger property that he worked. Either way, Anthony Graves was an important figure in the history of Oak Island for many decades. Despite the lack of serious treasure hunting on Oak Island in the later part of the 19th century, it seems stories of the mystery continue to circulate throughout Nova Scotia and its popularity continued to flourish. Let's turn once again to author Darcy O'Connor, who writes about this period like this. Quote, the story, often a mixture of fact and folklore, spread to other parts of Canada and New England. And few tourists to the Chester area missed the opportunity to take the boat out to Oak Island to peer into the water-filled pit. But as O'Connor and other researchers also regularly point out about these years, the legend grew, but so did some healthy skepticism. Decades of spectacular failure was part of the story now, and perhaps that was part of the reason why no one was willing to start searching again right away. This is a point in history where pirates and buried treasure were very popular within the culture. Remember, just about everything we think we know about pirates and how they lived and talked and all that, uh, that all comes from fiction, and mostly from Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, Treasure Island. Stevenson's landmark work was published in 1881, and it grew in popularity and became something of sort of a pop culture sensation for these decades. Pirates were in the front of mind for people, an average person, and folks the world over really were looking for and claiming to find buried pirate treasure all over the place. So you can see how this most fascinating of treasure mysteries, and one mostly considered a pirate treasure mystery up until this point, would be so interesting to people. But you can also see how the intellectual world might have also found this whole Oak Island thing silly and exasperating all at the same time. And that's exactly what appears to happen appears to have happened here throughout uh, you know, newspaper articles and that kind of thing. But with the island's legend still growing and pirates becoming more and more popular every day, it really was only a matter of time before the peaceful quiet of Oak Island was once again replaced by the sounds of digging, drilling, shoveling, and all that kind of stuff. But that's another story for another podcast.
So that's it for this episode of Taking Hulk Island. Uh, we now pretty much have our timeline kind of up to the start of the 20th century, or at least close enough. Uh, but like I said, I wasn't really trying to hit a year here. Um, I was basically trying to end an era, or what I think is an era, of the timeline. And as the timeline continues to progress, the way we can define eras sort of changes a little bit as searchers kind of expand their focus and... There's also significant changes in technology that start coming in sort of fast and furiously here throughout the, you know, the 20th century. But with the debut of season eight of The Curse of Oak, of Oak Island only days away, might not get back to our timeline until next spring. So stay subscribed, folks, if you want to hear the end of it. Speaking of staying subscribed, don't forget to make sure you subscribe to our show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy our little podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes with a five-star rating. Uh, iTunes seems to be the best, but I'm sure you can do that in other places. It helps to get the word out on us, and that is always a good thing. You can also follow us on Facebook. We are at Digging Oak Island, also on Twitter, same place. Give us a like there or a follow and... Uh, you know, be much appreciated. Great way to interact with other fans of the show and for me to post sort of news things about the show. And if you have any questions and comments that you want to send directly to me, you can always do so via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Don't forget, I would like to compile your predictions for season eight and your wish lists of what you would like to see happening in this upcoming season uh, for a preview podcast, which we're going to do probably next week. So get them in as quickly as you can. Um, you can email them or DM me on the social media, whichever works for you. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.